Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books Network. My name is Sydney, a host on the channel, and today I'm going to be talking with Dr. Tobias Ide um, about his new book, Catastrophes, Confrontations, and Constraints, How Disasters Shape the Dynamics of Armed Conflict, out, I believe, this week uh, with MIT Press. So congratulations on the book. Um, Tobias is a He's a senior lecturer in politics and international relations at Murdoch University in Perth in Australia. Um, His academic interests include climate politics, peace and conflict studies, international politics, security studies, and critical geopolitics of education. Uh, He employs various quantitative and qualitative research methods, including QCA or quantitative, qualitative, excuse me, comparative analysis and field research. We will be talking about those today. Um, he got his MA from Leipzig in 2012 and has a PhD from Hamburg in 2015. Um, he also has this fancy German um, post-PhD thing called a Habilitation um, that he got in 2019 from Braunschweig. He's worked in several institutes all around the world. I can vouch personally. I've read his work. Tobias knows what he's talking about, um, and this book is really good. So Tobias, welcome to the Zoomfix Network. Thanks a lot, Sydney, for having me here. Awesome. So I guess we'll just start out with the same question we start out with every time, which is sort of tell me something about yourself and how you came to write this book. Um, yeah. What is the like sort of story be behind the story, as we say? Yeah. All right. So I think there's there's a long story and a short story behind it, or like a long term and a short term perspective. So the long term perspective is I studied um, political science with an interest in international politics, peace and conflict but not particularly interested in in climate and environmental issues. And then two things happened around the same time. So the first thing is I did an an internship at the Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact Research, where you're currently located, where everyone talks about like climate change and how important world-changing it is. Um, So I was really getting into the topic. And at the same time, I did a study trip to the Middle East, where, where you can where topics like land and particularly water are, are very contentious politically and always like um, there are there are um, sort of political conflicts but also protests and riots about water issues, which basically showed to me how environmental issues or climate related issues can be can be conflict relevant and security relevant. Um, and that's when I started to work in the wider field of environmental security, climate change and conflict, environmental peace building. Um, and I, I worked and published for, for several years on that. And then um, I, I started focusing more on disasters because we know like big disasters, floods, storms, droughts, they're among the the most visible and the most impactful consequences of of climate change. Um, And understanding their security implications seem to be quite important because you you could read like three, four years back already, you could read all over the news there were concerns the Taliban would exploit Pakistan's bad 2010 floods to, you know, increase their room for maneuver. There was... um, significant peace agreement in Indonesia after the 2004 Indian Ocean tsunami. Um, there was a lot of debate about pastoralist conflict and actually Al-Shabaab-related violence in Somalia um, related to drought. Um, so you could see it all, all, all over the place. So I become really interested in this, uh, in the impacts of disasters or conflict more specifically. Um, and then I got a really big project funded on that by the Australian Research Council, which is, at my career stage, perhaps the biggest project you can get in Australia. Um, and I started doing research for that, and I actually like to write journal articles. They are short, they are concise, you can make your point in eight to 10,000 words, they are quick to read for others. Um, but shortly after starting the project, um, 
I realized that the topic is so nuanced and so complex um, and that I have will be able to gather so much evidence during the project that I'll need a book to um, to put it down. So I decided to write the book. Fair enough. Um, and I have read a lot of books in my life. Some of them justify a book and some do not. But this one, this topic really is large enough and there really is enough in this book to actually justify there being a book. Um, so one of the things I really like about this book is that it does a very good job of summarizing sort of where we are when you started this book and where some of this evidence you gathered is. So do you want to just briefly lay out to our audience what it is that we knew before you started this book or that we know now um, about the relationship between disasters and violence? Sort of like, what is it that, where were we starting? All right. So as already indicated, I conceived the impacts or on of disasters on conflict risks as part of a broader debate on climate change and conflict. Now, um, it's not a neat overlap because, for instance, cold spells, tsunamis, or earthquakes are not necessarily related to climate change. Um, but there's there's a big overlap. Let's put it like that. Um, so we knew basically before I started writing the book, we knew that climate change was influencing conflict risks, not so much conflict risks between states, um, but there, there was, let's say, considerable evidence that climate change increases the risk of, of conflict um, within states. Um, and I think the most clear evidence was about local protests, about droughts, water scarcity, high food prices. Um, there's also uh, significant evidence on more like communal type of violence between different communities. Um, evidence is a bit weaker for, for full-blown civil wars, but there was this whole debate about the Syrian civil war uh, and whether it has been triggered by drought, which still goes on and is unresolved as of today. Uh, so we know that, that disasters increase the, the, the risks of, of armed conflicts, of violent conflicts within states. Um, but there were several things we didn't know. So, And I, I, I point out to three things in particular. First of all, we didn't know a lot about the causal pathways. So a lot of the knowledge was coming from statistical large end studies uh, analyzing 20,000 political units and uh, in, in basically with statistical techniques. Very good if you want to generalize and to use widely available data, um, but not necessarily good for tracing how the disaster exactly causes the conflict, the conflict risk change. Um, which I'd say is, is quite important because you cannot prevent a disaster conflict nexus if you don't know the pathways uh, through which it, it appears. Um, the second thing is that the debate has been overly focused, in my view, on higher conflict risks. So it has always been, does do disasters, does climate change result in more conflicts, yes or no? Um, and there has been very little debate about a third possibility, namely that disasters can at least temporarily, in some contexts, increase uh, the chances that conflict risks are reduced, that there is a lower risk of conflict. And I assume we, we talk about the theoretical framework and why these assumptions make sense of it later in a podcast. Um, but, but this premise, climate change disasters leading to lower conflict risks, has, has hardly been systematically investigated in the literature. Um, and that's basically the second big big research gap that the book the book closes. Um, the third one is that almost all of the evidence came from armed conflict onset came on armed conflict onset or incidents. There was very, very little knowledge about what actually happens if a disaster strikes an armed conflict zone. What happened basically? How do the conflict dynamics change? Does the government retreat? Does it escalate the conflict? How do the rebels react to a disaster? Um, and given that um, globally, uh, conflict areas and disaster areas are increasingly overlapping, just think of the recent earthquake, the big earthquake in Syria. Um, it's important to have to, to close this certain knowledge gap. Awesome. Um, that more or less covers it. And this is one of the things I like the most about this book is you open it and within 20 pages, you are where you want, where everyone else is on this topic. Um, so you mentioned 
and you're correct, we are going to, um, that, that you have sort of a basic framework that you lay out in this book where you talk about sort of both the possibility of armed groups and states to escalate and de-escalate conflicts, so to change the intensity, and you lay out three sort of potential pathways. These are motives, strategy, and communication. Do you want to talk or walk us through them, like, as 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 you like? Um, yeah, I'm very happy to do so. Um, so basically, it's a neat two-by-three table, as we like to do in political science. Um, so you basically have, on the one side, you have the two outcomes the project is mostly interested in, which is the escalation or the de-escalation of armed conflicts. Basically, ongoing armed conflict, you have an ongoing civil war, and you have a major disaster striking it. Does the conflict escalate or de-escalate? Um, I mean, obviously, there's a change. There, there's the possibility that the conflict dynamics do not change at all, but I think that's less, less re interesting or relevant to explain. Um, and then I basically identify three pathways or three explanations, three broad explanations that help us to make sense of the phenomenon of civil war and political violence more broadly. Um, so the first one is basically motive. So here we are focusing on the motivations, the desires, um, the ideas of those people who are engaged in the conflict to support the conflict parties or who join the conflict parties and to make decisions at the conflict parties. Um, and here, basically, we can clearly see, and that's what I call the, 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 the grievances pathway, um, disasters can result in relevant grievances. Um, quite often, disasters are associated with large losses, both personally, if friends, relatives, or neighbors perish during the disaster, but also massive economic losses, loss of assets, infrastructure destruction. Um, now, if population gets the impression that the state doesn't do anything about a disaster, that it didn't prepare well, that it didn't respond well, that it provides not enough support for the reconstruction, or if the population gains the impression that the state cares, but only about another political group, um, another ethnic group, um, or about rich people, people will be massively aggrieved um, about a disaster impact. And if there's an active rebel group, um, why not start supporting that rebel group against the government um, if, the, if, if you feel the government screwed you up so badly during the disaster? Um, so basically, the pathway is disasters lead to more grievances, which then lead to an escalation of the conflict. However, uh, we know from a very rich research tradition in disaster sociology and disaster diplomacy that disasters also provide valuable opportunities um, for, for cooperation and that usually in times of extreme events, people overcome their previous differences and try to support and work with each other even across pre-existing pre divides and um, the book describes several cases, among others, the 2004 tsunami in Nacir, Indonesia, where populations, but also fighters from different parts or from different sides of the civil war, joined forces to recover um, after or to, to basically aid recovery after a disaster. Um, so that's what I call the solidarity pathway. So basically disaster triggering solidarity between the conflict parties and their supporter, hence providing an environment that is perhaps less prone to violence and more prone to negotiation and, and ceasefires. So that's the motivation pathway, basically focusing on the motivations of the individuals. The second explanation, and I, sometimes they complement each other, but as a scientist, obviously, we also want to distinguish the different pathways and see which one has a better explanatory power and what, what policy recommendations we can draw from that. Yes. So the second pa pathway is what I call the strategy pathway, and that focuses less on the motives and motivations of the participants in political violence, but more on the strategic considerations of the conflict parties. Now, we could easily imagine that disasters um, lead to massive negative impacts. The government, for instance, usually um, uh, needs to devote considerable resources to disaster response. It quite often suffers from the loss of tax income. Um, 
and it usually needs to de deploy security forces, most most uh, most prominently the military, to the disaster area to aid with the reconstruction, clear the rubble, prevent looting, and so on. Um, and there could be an opportunity for the rebel groups to um, to use the weakness and the distraction of the government to escalate the conflict. Um, use this window of opportunity of a weakened government. However, um, and I think that's already implicit in this argument, the conflict, I mean, if the conflict parties are weakened by the disaster, if the fighters perish by, uh, in the rumble of an earthquake or if they drown in a flood, if their equipment, their, their camps are destroyed, they get less support from the civilian populations um, because they struggle economically, they don't, they can't pay much taxes. There's not much um, to extract for rebel groups from the local population. That weakens the conflict parties. And if the conflict parties are weakened, then we can expect a de-escalation of the conflict. Um, and that's what I call the constraints pathway. Um, and then I bring in a third perspective, which I argue is fairly novel because this idea of grievances or basically of motives and strategy um, I mean, they are fairly common in research on, on armed conflict dynamics, on conflict onset, and they have been adapted by the climate and disaster security literature. However, there's there's another theoretical perspective which has so far never been applied to the study of environmental security, climate change, conflict, or disasters, which I call communication. And the idea here is that violence is an effective form of communication. Um, so violence is um, a means to send a message to the other conflict party um, or to a broader audience. Um, and I mean, historically, that has a long precedent. If you think about even, uh, if you think about armies moving forward or especially retreating after, after uh, during the world wars or during the Balkan wars, um, they basically used excessive violence against others, uh, other fighters or civilians to basically demonstrate that they are really tough and uh, that are really capable fighters and really cruel and to intimidate, um, to intimidate the other side. And I think that can be quite, quite, quite neatly applied to studies of disasters and conflicts. Because if you think about, as I just said, a disaster might lead um, to a conflict party to being weakened uh, because it lost fighters, it lost infrastructure, um, it cannot tax the local population that well, and so on. Now, if you're fighting in a civil war, and especially if you're a rebel group, you don't want to be perceived as weakened. Uh, by the disaster or as you know no longer fully determined to fight after the disaster because you, you you rely on support from the local population perhaps from foreign governments um also also state forces rely on often on international support and support from the local population so now a conflict party could of course say hey look even after the disaster we are still determined we are still capable we are still will continue to fight for you but that's not credible because obviously every conflict party would always say that. No conflict party would go public and say, oh, look, we're really weakened by the disaster. We can't really do anything for you anymore. Because then they would lose the support. Um, they would go to another rebel group or they would perhaps support um, or basically or there would be lower support for state military forces. Um, but as everyone knows, they would never basically, or as everyone knows, their commitments are not credible. Uh, what they can do is they can escalate the violence after the disaster to show, hey, look, disaster is gone. We're still staging attacks. We are still staging offensives. We are still doing terrorist strikes. We are still there. We still play a role. We are still determined, hence sending a strong signal to their supporting constituencies that they are still relevant. Um, and that's especially for forms of violence that are relatively cheap, like targeting civilians, uh, which is usually quite easy for armed actors to do. Um, however, on the other side, exactly, and that's what that's what that's what I call the costly signal pathway, um, and that's contrasted with. Um, with a sixth pathway, which is the converse, which is the, the image cultivation pathway. Now, it basically operates on the same premise. So 
art groups depend on the image they have um, among their internal supporters, but also among their international supporters. Um, and usually the disaster-affected population, but also not international donors, especially Western donors, they don't really like if you escalate violence in a dire humanitarian emergency because it basically sends the signal, hey, we're escalating the violence, we don't care about the local population, we don't care about the international relief and aid efforts. Um, so it really sends a bit signal and it can cost you quite a few sympathies. And it did, for instance, with Al-Shabaab in 2010-11 when they blocked the drought aid to enter the country uh, due to their fear of foreign infiltration. It cost them a lot of sympathies among the local population. Um, so that's why we, my expectation is at least framework wise, that we could see that happening in quite a few cases that when all the media, all the international attention is on the disaster area after a big disaster, um, conflict parties tend to hold back. They restrain a bit because they want to cultivate their image. They want to, want to send a signal that they are the responsible, reliable, good guys. Um, so in summary, we have these two possible outcomes, escalation or de-escalation, and then the three perspectives, motive, um, strategy, and communication. And I want to know basically, then focus interested in basically how often and when do disasters lead to conflict escalation or de-escalation, and which of these six pathways um, or these three logics has the best explanatory power. Uh, great. Let's get nerdy. So the way that you tease this out or you attempt to answer this question is, as I mentioned at the beginning, something called qualitative comparative analysis or QCA. Uh, we negotiated at the beginning of this interview that you would you would explain this to our audience in the same way you would explain this to your 13-year-old. So give it your best shot. Sort of walk us through what this is, because it really is core to the empirical contribution in the book and then some of your other work. Yes. Um, QCA, Qualitative Comparative Analysis, is the main method I use for the project. It's um, It was invented by Charles Reagan in 1987, but I think it only became widely popular in the broader social sciences in the last 10 years or so. Um, as every method is, has its shortcomings and deficits, but it also has some significant benefits I could utilize for the project. Um, now, to give you a rough idea, it's... Um, it's a set theoretic method grounded in Boolean algebra, which perhaps my 13-year-old son wouldn't understand. So um, basically what you do is, um, the logic behind this is you conceive cases um, as members of sets. So for instance, we have the set of cases where the disaster escalated after the conflict. And then I can basically decide for each of the 36 cases I discussed in the book, is this, is this case um, Somalia after the 2010 drought, Aceh, Indonesia after the 2004 tsunami, Colombia after the 99 earthquake, and so on? Is this case part of the set of countries or of cases where the armed conflict escalated after the disaster or not? So that's pretty binary. Um, and then you can do that for, is that country or the case also part of the set of cases where we have democratic country where the government where there were significant grievances among the local local population about a disaster where large amounts of international aid were flowing in after the disaster and so on um, so that, that that's called the calibration process where you basically um, sort these binary zero one logic to your data and sort them into cases um, and then in the next step um, yeah. we in essence, you run an algorithm via software that tells you, based on your calibrated data set, um, what works, uh, what are the pathways that explain your outcomes, in this case, conflict escalation or conflict de-escalation after disasters. And I mean, it's a pretty complex algorithm, um, even so not complex enough that I could do most of my mathematics by hand. I'm not doing it because it would be super time intensive, but at least I could do it. Um, but to give you very simple examples, so let's say, let's just say we had two cases where a conflict escalated. Um, 
and in one of the case we had large disaster impact a very angry population and the democratic government and in the other case we also had large disaster impact a very angry population but a non-democratic government um, then the algorithm would basically show that obviously um, the angry government and the large disaster impacts they matter for the outcome conflict escalation because they are present in all the cases Democracy, on the other hand, is sometimes present and sometimes absent, but it's still, but we still have the conflict escalation, so it's not a relevant causal condition and it would be deleted. Now, this is much more complex if you throw in 36 cases with a larger number of conditions, but it gives you a bit of an idea. Um, the reason why I use QCA in the projects are multifold. To start with, QCA is really, really good if it comes to medium and 8 to 50-ish cases research designs, simply because the mathematics are geared toward these designs, which allow me to make an important contribution because I feel the literature on climate security and on disasters and conflict is so divided between, on one hand, a few studies that only focus on one or two cases then can really dive deep into the cases, but we have no idea how generalizable they are, how they speak to a broader population of cases. Then on the other hand, we have these really large statistical studies with tens thousands of cases, which are quite generalizable, but we know nothing about the specific causal pathways. We know and we cannot throw in any factors, any conditions, that for which we don't have any quantitative data. Um, while for 36 cases, it, it's still quite possible to get to, to basically collect information on how angry, how aggrieved the population was after the disaster, or how the disaster impacted the rebel groups. Um, and QCA basically combines the best of two worlds. It has some moderate degree of generalizability because it goes beyond only one to three cases but there's still enough room to get qualitative information and to know a lot about your case. And that connects to the second main issue because as you need to calibrate all data into these binary 0-1 categories, um, also there's also QCA variants where you have more than the binary options, but you all always need to categorize them as members of sets, which means no matter whether your data are quantitative or qualitative, you, can, you have to calibrate them and that means you can combine quantitative and qualitative data in the same analysis, um, which I did in the book, and which was, was tremendously useful for understanding the patterns going on. And so the third major advantage of QCA is that it is very well able to detect complex pattern in data. So if you're just interested in a linear relationship, let's say between disasters and conflict risks, um, you might you might want to use other methods, but QCA is pretty good in, in detecting relationships like um, if disaster have large-scale local impacts, um, this leads to conflict de-escalation, but only if the rebels are affected and the population is not, not, not aggrieved or if massive international aid flows in. So this complex... It only happens, but only if X, Y, and all set is there. Um, QCA is really good in, in figuring those out. Um, and as I assume that the empirical analysis proves that, that the impact of disasters on, on conflict risks or escalation is not like a one way, but pretty complex and dependent on scope conditions. It was a quite useful method to use for the book. Awesome. Um, and so one final follow-up on methodology, which is how did you select the cases? I believe there are 36 of them. Where does that number come from? How did you find them? All right. So I used um, a pretty big data set on large-scale disasters in country, the MDAT data set. I filtered it to only have disasters with uh, 1,000 uh, fatalities uh, since 1990 because my conflict data only go back to 1990. So... Um, that was the time period. So then basically I had a list of all the disasters um, with more than 1,000 deaths. And then for each country and each year where there was a disaster, I checked the Uppsala conflict data program whether there was a civil war ongoing in that country. Or in case of India, I focused on um, the states rather than the whole country because in India there's so many conflicts and disasters going on each year um, that it was more manageable. 
Um, and that quickly that quickly led to 31 cases of really large scale disasters resulting in um, result, uh, striking an armed conflict zone or a civil war affected country. Um, I had to cut out a few cases, usually the minor cases. So because India and the Philippines had so many disasters with more than 1,000 deaths, um, I restricted the sample to not more than four cases from each of those countries because otherwise the evidence would have primarily been from these two countries rather than a global comparative analysis. And then I found that certain world regions, especially Sub-Saharan Africa and Latin America, were underrepresented, but also certain conflict types, particularly droughts, um, because measuring the, 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 the deaths related to droughts, it's a, it's a bit tricky, and that's why they are often underreported. So then I basically looked for five other major disasters, both in the data set, but also in the literature, that has mass had massive implications on the ground, not 1,000 deaths, but still massive implications, and that happened in conflict countries. And that's why I came up with an additional five disasters, which allowed me to bring much more droughts and also five countries previously not covered into the analysis. Perfect. And broadly speaking, what is it that we found? We sort of built it up. You have a question, a framework, a methodology, like sort of, in terms of like reason, like reasonable, like sort of like high level takeaways, what what do we come away with? Okay, so several ones. First off, in fifty percent of the cases, disasters had no impact on conflict dynamics, which resonates quite well with what we know from other environmental security work, namely that environmental factors, climate factors, disasters don't have a deterministic impact on conflict risks. Um, they have an impact, but only in certain contexts. Um, in 25, about 25% of the cases, disasters resulted in a, an escalation of the conflict, significantly higher fighting intensity the year after the disaster. Um, and that was mostly the case because rebels seized or used opportunities open to them by the disaster because they could, re they could um, recruit deprived people, so people who lost their livelihoods in the disaster that were looking for any sort of income that had less to lose were increasingly recruited by the rebel groups. Also, the state was distracted both financially, but also needed, as I already explained, needed to devote its security forces. Um, and that created uh, a window of opportunity for the rebels to, to escalate the conflict. Um, sometimes the state also escalated, but the, the rebels were always one of the driving forces. So it happened in another 25% of the cases. Um, Colombia, after the 1999 Armenia earthquake, being perhaps an excellent case where um, GDP um, re was reduced by 6% in the three months after the disaster because all the coffee growing areas were affected. Um, government had to send several thousand security forces to the disaster area to avoid plundering and looting. Um, had to, government also had to cut back its, um, its uh, basically social service programs in the rebel-affected areas to win hearts and minds, and the FARC rebels saw an excellent opportunity to upscale their fighting. Yet in another 25% of the cases, the armed conflict actually de-escalated, which means in the first 6 to 12 months after the disaster, we had fewer battles and fewer people dying in battles. Um, now, this was the case also mostly because of constraints. Think about 2010 floods in Pakistan, where there was a lot of public debate about whether the Taliban would utilize this as an opportunity to recruit new members, upscale their fighting. But they couldn't because the Taliban was still an actor with significant governments, well, let's say governance responsibilities in some areas. Um, so it needed to provide disaster relief, disaster aid to the population to, to continue their support. Um, also, the, the Taliban saw basically got a lot of money from the disaster flood affected areas, uh, either through enforced contributions or through voluntary donations. Um, with these areas devastated by the floods, um, the Taliban lost quite a bit of their income, which um, weakened them militarily. 
And the government couldn't exploit that either because the government had to devote so many resources to the disaster response. 20% of the country's area were underwater. Um, and likewise, it was really hard to move around the military if all the roads are flooded. Um, so we see that disaster also in clearly provided constraints. Uh, in some of the cases, particularly with large-scale disasters like um, the 2005 earthquake in Kashmir or Cyclone Nagis in Mulan in 2008, we saw the communication perspective playing a role for de-escalation um, because with the large-scale disasters, there was a lot of international attention to those cases, and then both the government, in, I mean, the government in Myanmar and the rebels in in Kashmir really reluctant, um, you know, to step up their violence um, and continue the fighting at that intensity um, after the disasters because they didn't want, you know, like to appear to be, to appear to be the bad guy um, in the international, uh, especially in the international audiences. Um, so we clearly see that um, the strategy perspective and when it comes to conflict de-escalation, a bit of the communication perspective have the most explanatory power. Um, and that tells us, then I'd say that is quite telling in terms of policy because um, if we merely think about societal stability and conflict risks, um, it means that um, appeasing grievances by topping up relief, sending additional aid into the countries will do a large job in helping with human security, but it won't necessarily prevent rebel groups from exploiting the opportunities, um, for instance, which um, means that um, things that hurt the conflict groups like international pressure, um, like saying we cut your support we don't deliver any aid unless you discontinue the fighting um, um, is, is a key mechanism. And if you think of um, countries like N N Niger, where um, extremist actors like Boko Haram or the Islamic State in, in, uh, in the Sahel um, try to use the droughts as opportunities to exploit um to exploit, recruit, to, to recruit new followers um, that are deprived by the drought and uh, exploit the weakness of the government. Um, it perhaps also means that after um, that after disasters, um, governments that uh, if the government respects human rights and democratic principles, it requires international support to fight off um, to fight off the um, the offensives by by the rebel groups. Um, now, to slightly elaborate on that, we also know that's that's pretty clearly shown in the QCA. We know that conflicts mostly change their intensity in countries where vulnerability to disasters is already pretty high and where one conflict party is negatively affected by the disaster. Um, and the interesting thing actually is that when the disaster affects one conflict party, mostly the government, in a really adverse way, the other group, and shifts the power between the two conflict parties, like it did recently in, in the Colombia example I just discussed. Um, that means um, conflict is most likely to escalate because the rebels are most likely to to, to, to use that um, opportunity, which means for policymakers that as soon as there is any evidence, and that usually pops up quite quickly, that one mass conflict party is massively negatively affected by the disaster and the other is not, um, that they need to prepare for conflict intensity flaring up, which is an issue if they have peacekeeping building or peacekeeping groups in the country, which is an issue if they deliver aid to the country and so on because it's much more dangerous they need to would need to negotiate safe access corridors with the, the fighting parties for instance um, if the disaster weakens one conflict party and it also weakens the other conflict party or the other party is already pretty weak um, that's usually when we see the conflict uh, intensity going down 
conflict de-escalating. And we know from a rich, um, rich body of research that whenever conflict intensity is down, it's much more likely that uh, we start peace negotiations or enter into agreements because that's when peace spoilers are less active um, and armed groups are generally have incentives um, to, to enter negotiations because um, fighting is currently not number one priority or they're not capable to do so. So that means that if we, as soon as we would recognize that a disaster negatively affects either both conflict parties or the opponent of a very weak conflict party, there would be a good opportunity to upscale diplomatic efforts and see whether there's an opportunity to negotiate ceasefires um, or even peace agreements, as we have seen in the Philippines, where, for instance, after se after several disasters, um, ceasefires were agreed on between the conflict parties. Um, I think the findings, I think, think this finding also speaks to wider debates on environmental security and climate security in, in quite a few ways, but I won't read the book to you, so let me just highlight two key ones. So the first thing is, as I already explained, there's all of this focus on do disasters to climate change increase conflict risks, yes or no, while there's a real possibility that at least in the short term, disasters result in a reduction in fighting intensity. It's 25% of the cases. It's as frequent as conflict escalation. Um, so that's a reality or an empirical um, an empirical development that both scholars and then policymakers need to take into account when taking into talking about climate security. Um, and I mean, then obviously another big contribution is that um, we know that the opportunity pathway um, and the constraints pathway, so the the, um, the strategic perspective, plays a much larger role than the other mechanisms. Even so, the symbolic perspective has some, some which has previously also not considered, has an impact on um, has an impact and it has an impact when it comes to conflict de-escalation. All right, no worries. We can just go on to the next question, which is about COVID-19. So you end the book or right before the conclusion, you have an analysis of four case studies related to the, and talk about the relationship between the COVID pandemic and escalation, de-escalation. Would you please tell us a bit about that analysis? What did you find? What did you do? How about it? Yeah, so one, one of the goals of the ideas of the project, um, because unfortunately disasters happen all the time and strike armed conflict areas all the time, was that during the duration of the project, which started in late 2019, was to focus on one case of a recent disaster. Um, and, well, when I developed that idea, I didn't anticipate such a big disaster um, like COVID striking the world, but... Um, Obviously, it was the, the recent or current case to, to study. Um, so basically, it's a more qualitative description of uh, four conflicts, which is the Taliban insurgency in Afghanistan, the Islamic State insurgency in Iraq, Boko Haram in Nigeria, and the communist rebellion in the Philippines. Um, and I basically, similar to 36 case studies in the main book, I traced how the disaster affected the conflict parties, um, put in some quantitative data on, on aid delivery, military deployments, conflict intensity, and so on, to understand how COVID shaped armed conflict dynamics. Um, interestingly, and this, that has later been confirmed by, by other studies focusing on other countries, the results are remarkably similar to the main results of the book. So COVID sometimes has an impact on conflict, sometimes not. Um, it es it, 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 uh, COVID provides an opportunity to escalate the conflict for some conflict parties, but it can also sometime, uh, sometimes put in constraints, especially if the conflict parties are weakened. Um, it also adds a nice temporal dimension. If you think of, and that's perhaps my, my favorite of the four COVID cases, if you think about um, the case of, of Afghanistan, of the Taliban insurgency. Um, now, I'm not saying that the Taliban wouldn't have won um, the war against the, 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 the uh, Afghan government without COVID, 
but I'm saying they exploited the COVID situation quite skillfully. So as, as you perhaps know, Afghanistan is a climatically quite extreme country with very cold and snowy winters where fighting is basically impossible. So traditionally in every year since the early 2000s, since they were fighting back the US uh, installed government uh, or the internationally installed government, um, the Taliban um, staged a spring offensive, which basically means once the snow melted and the temperatures get warmer, the Taliban would stage, would move their troops around and stage additional attacks. Um, and they didn't do so in 2020. Um, and that's that's confirmed by the data on, on armed conflict intensity with not a significant uptick in battles or battle-related deaths. Now, why didn't they do so? They didn't do so because they saw an opportunity, the Taliban saw an opportunity to portray themselves as a good guy, as a legitimate governance actor, um, as a better alternative to the government in the areas in which they had control or a strong presence. So they devoted um, mostly manpower, but also money and other of their resources to aid with the COVID-19 response. So basically enforcing movement restrictions, um, sending fighters around, uh, driving with motorcycles from village to village to warn the local populations um, about infection risks and COVID-19. And they did so earlier, and at least in the areas they controlled, also more effectively than the government, um, which also struggled with the COVID-19 pandemic. So it couldn't stage a large, large uh, offensive on its own, um, which basically means the government is threatened and weakened, Taliban having other strategic priorities, moving resources away from the conflict to the COVID response, and we see a remarkably de-escalation of the conflict compared to the same period a year before. Um, now, the Taliban did not do that because they are the biggest supporters of human rights. They did that because they wanted to gather support in uh, in, uh, in the local villages and among the local population. Um, and I think that's what I meant when I say it adds an important temporary perspective because on the one hand, it basically confirms the relations of the book that basically how disaster, or the main finding of the book that depending on how the disaster shapes opportunities or constraints for widens, the conflict will escalate or de-escalate. But on the other hand, a short-term de-escalation can provide benefits to a conflict party in the long term, for instance, if they use the opportunity to build support among a local population. Awesome. Um, so we're heading towards the end of the interview. So we're going to hit the traditional last questions. The first of which is, what are you working on next? Um, I recently got a project together with Hiroshima University in Japan that basically is... Um, a follow-up on the project that really zooms in on rebel groups and asks what do rebel groups do after large-scale disasters, uh, both militarily, but also in terms of governance. Um, basically, when do they provide relief? When do they help the local population? And why not? And why not? And why not? Um, if they control areas, do they prepare for disasters? If they don't prepare or hardly prepare, do they change their strategies after a disaster hit? So it's basically um, recognizing the fact that um, according to very conservative estimates, over 60 million people worldwide live in, govern live in, in territories that are exclusively controlled by rebel groups. Um, if you add in territories where the government has at least some control left, uh, you easily get hundreds of millions. Uh, and then again, with disaster intensity on the frequency of the rise, it's quite intense. It's quite interesting to see how rebel groups act uh, after disasters, both in terms of military strategies, but also governance-wise. And I feel that's a quite logical continuation of, of the book while adding an important disaster risk reduction perspective to the mix. Okay. And then my favorite last question, which is, could you give our audience a recommendation for a book or something you're reading? Uh, yes, I'm actually currently reading, um, and it's already um, seven years old, but I'm nevertheless uh, going to recommend it. A book called Rebel Governance in Civil War, uh, written by Anna Jonah, Nelson Kasfir, and Zachariah Mampili uh, with Cambridge University Press. 
Um, and the, the book basically is um, the first very comprehensive book-length introduction into how rebel groups do not just fight during civil wars, but also provide all kinds of services, security, policing, justice, um, medics or um, health, education, transport, taxes, and so on to populations and how that both affects the well-beings of the populations, but also the strategic benefits or restrictions of the rebel groups. Um, and it's a fascinating book uh, and um, it breaks a lot of the stereotypes about, well, the government provides the government services and rebels fight the government and once they replace it, then they provide the government services and adds an important nuance by showing that quite often non-state armed actors like the Taliban in Afghanistan, for instance, um, provide or actually provide important services to the population. Um, and next after that on my reading list, um, and I'm a bit embarrassed, I haven't read it yet, um, is uh, Joshua Busby's uh, book, new book on climate security, also with Cambridge University Press that has bit of a similar research design than mine, focusing on other cases with some very contrasting outcomes. Like he feel he, he finds that state capacity, how strong a state is, is quite important. Strong states experience climate-related stability not so often weak states do. Um, I find that state capability is not of so much explanatory power. Um, so it will be quite interesting to read that and, and uh, identify the reasons for why we came to different conclusions. That is an excellent plug because Josh will eventually be coming on the NBN to talk about that. So for our audience, look forward to that. Um, the book is Catastrophes, Constraints, and er, Confrontations and Constraints, sorry, um, How Disasters Shape the Dynamics of Armed Conflict. Congratulations on the book, Tobias. It's coming out this week, I believe, with MIT. Um, yes, and... and it will be open access, so you can download it. Yes, so you can go to the MIT Press website, you can download the book, and you can learn all about the things that we talked about here. Um, thank you very much for coming on here. Um, it was a pleasure. All right, thanks a lot, Sydney, and uh, I hope you will enjoy reading the book.